streamlined design that sets it apart from the lookalike. Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking right now on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin. Welcome to Bloomberg Day here at Business Disrupted. Our guests are Bloomberg government reporter Megan Wilson and Bloomberg law reporter Daniel Gill. Megan is a reporter with Bloomberg government, where she covers the intersection of money and politics with an emphasis on the lobbying industry. Before joining Bloomberg government in 2018, she worked for six and a half years at The Hill newspaper, where she covered K Street, federal regulations and campaigns. Daniel Gill writes for Bloomberg Law after a career that started as a clerk for a U.S. bankruptcy judge in Los Angeles and then practicing law in the bankruptcy and insolvency field before moving to Maryland and becoming a journalist on Bloomberg Law's bankruptcy desk. Megan and Danny are joining us today as we explore what the heck happened with gaming retailer GameStop's stock in the second half of January 2021, what caused the price to skyrocket, what caused hedge fund Melvin Capital to lose half of its value, and why funds are now knocking on the doors of Congress seeking to be protected from themselves. Some background. If you've been to a shopping mall, you've probably seen a GameStop, a smallish retail store dedicated to the sale of video games, gamer supplies, and accessories. A nice, sleepy retail business decimated by the pandemic like so many other retail businesses. In early 2020, GameStop GameStop stock was trading in the mid-single digits. In early January of 2021, GameStop's stock was trading around $18 per share. On January 28th, that stock closed to $364, having traded up above $400. Why did this happen? Well, some hedge funds were short-selling GameStop stock. A group of traders on a Reddit discussion forum called Wall Street Bets decided to basically try to screw up the hedge fund's plans by purchasing and holding GameStop stock and options to drive the price up. This price change got the attention of the media. The media reported on the increase in GameStop stock, which made others want to join in. So other traders bought the stock, which made the price increase even more. So it's the media's fault? No. And if that was the story of GameStop, we'd be done a little early. But that's not the whole story. I thought everything was the media's fault, Ted. Haven't you been following the news? <laughs> Wait, I thought we were done with that. Didn't that, didn't that change in January? Oh, well, you know, there's, here's hoping, but no, it hasn't. Okay. Well, good, good to know. Um, but first, a bit of an explanation. When most people buy stock, they're hoping that the price goes up after they buy it, otherwise known as a long position. When someone short sells stock, they're betting that the price will go down. When the price goes up, it can create what's called a short squeeze. Basically, the short seller, instead of waiting to purchase the stock at a lower price, is forced to cover their commitments by purchasing the stock back to close out their position. They have to do this because they have to cover their losses. You might recognize this as what is referred to as a margin call. Perhaps the best example in popular culture of, of short selling is what happens at the end of the movie Trading Places, starring Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. There, amid all the confusion on the trading floor, what they're doing is shorting orange juice futures by selling those commodities at the top of the market before the area of agriculture announces the real crop report. Then they're buying those commodities at the bottom of the market after everyone needs to sell to recoup their losses from buying when the price was rising. And when the commodities exchange seizes the Duke brothers' assets at the end, reducing them to poverty providing the film's protagonists the pleasure of schadenfreude and setting up a delightful callback for the movie coming to America, 
That is the margin call. If you want to learn more about this scene, consider listening to episode 471 of the Planet Money podcast titled The Eddie Murphy Rule. We've put a link to this show on the episode page of our website. So when people explain the purpose of stock investing is to buy low and sell high, when someone is short selling, what they're doing is the same thing, but in the reverse order, they're selling high and buying low. So the GameStop story really falls into three broad buckets. The differences between retail traders and hedge funds, the relationships between market makers and retail brokers, and the relationships between hedge funds and you know, sometimes the hedge funds that have relationships are really the same firm. So let's start with the retail traders and the hedge funds. The biggest difference between a retail trader like you and I and a hedge fund is how we treat knowledge and information. Hedge funds and institutional traders guard their knowledge. They don't share information with each other or the public. They don't like to talk about their positions, but they will gossip like school kids about other funds' positions because you knowing about someone else's position is a weakness on the other party's side, which gives them a competitive advantage. Can I, can I break in with a question, Ted? Yeah. Uh, Don't hedge funds sometimes want their positions to be known, especially if they're shorting something for don't, don't they want the public to know that this big hedge fund thinks this stock's going to go down. So that'll, actually drive the price down. Because well, that's right. And so it, there's a, there's a, the big difference between retail investors and hedge funds is how they like to disseminate information or whether they even talk about what they know or not. With a retail investor, chances are if they're saying something about a stock, they want you to do the thing that their words make you want to do. So if someone is talking about how great a stock is, that makes you want to buy it. And they're probably telling you that because they want you to buy it. Their interest lies in you buying it because more people buying stock makes the stock go up. And, and Danny, what you've raised is the exact converse of that point. When a hedge fund talks about how they're shorting a stock, they believe the price will go down. If, you know, generic respected giant hedge fund A announces to the world, we are short on GameStop, that's saying to the world, we believe GameStop stock is going to plummet, and that makes people want to sell. And the large group of people selling then causes GameStop's price to plummet. The classic it, self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, you know, I mean, one could call it a self-fulfilling prophecy. One could also call it market manipulation. I think it really <laughs> depends on, on the beholder. So hedge funds are a competitive business. And when a fund has a lot, of a lot of money invested, that's a very lucrative business for that fund. As we mentioned, retail traders are usually one of two things. They're either silent or they are chatty as hell. They tend to view the silence of institutional investors as, as, as the investors or the funds being secretive, and they don't necessarily like that. So an example of a silent retail trader is everyone you know who has a stock account where they trade stocks, but they don't publicize it. An example of a chatty as hell retail trader is Keith Gill, who posts market observations on his YouTube channel under the name Roaring Kitty, and who posts to Reddit under the handle Deep Effing Value on the subreddit oh, really? Wall Street Bets. So that's really how the three groups process information differently. And a lot of this, particularly on the retail side, involves preening on social media. 
again, because when somebody talks about stock in public, they want you to do the thing that what they're saying makes you want to do. And so in July of 2020, Roaring Kitty, Keith Gill, posts a video to his YouTube channel advocating for more uh, uh, more collaborative and interactive research behind trading. And, and, and he starts this conversation with the notion, maybe we could have some fun with it. And he, what he's espousing is open sharing of information about given stocks. In August, the next month, he posts a video in which he says he's positive on GameStop. And he calls their thesis simple but misunderstood and explains that GameStop is an established, uniquely positioned retail player in a thriving $100 billion, $150 billion gaming industry. So... He thinks that they are undervalued and their stock price will rise. And he's advocating for that. A few weeks later, Gil posts another video talking about how hedge funds are shorting GameStop. And he encourages his viewers to buy and hold GameStop to prevent the price from falling. And he also does this under the name Deep Effing Value on Reddit in the Wall Street Bets subreddit. Danny. I was just wondering if you had any idea about um, Keith Gill's um, followers on YouTube, like the number of them. I no don't. idea. I'm no look. idea. If it's if it's any whole number greater than one, then there's somebody out there who finds interest in what he's saying, and you assume that he's not doing YouTube videos for himself. I, I imagine we could pop over there, and we'll do that during the break, and come back and uh, and talk about his followers. I imagine he has many more followers since his name started ending up in uh, in, in 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 the in the press. So. One would ask the reasonable question, why is he talking about GameStop in August of 2020? Well, because in 2020, GameStop was one of the most shorted stocks in all trading. And that's a big thing because there are other stocks that are notoriously shorted. At one point, estimates are that half of all tradable shares of GameStop had been borrowed to support short sales. Those short sellers were, by and large, hedge funds, but nobody knew which hedge funds were shorting because hedge funds don't talk about their positions, and institutional investors aren't required to disclose their stock positions. But they are required to disclose options positions. So an option, as differentiated from a stock, is the privilege to buy or sell stock at some point in the future. Uh, and, and one of the active markets, particularly for GameStop, was in options, the right to buy or sell stock at a given price later. If you have an option that allows you to buy stock at $1 per share and the stock goes up to 20 and you exercise that option, you've just earned $19 per share. Other than the paperwork, it's pretty quick money. And uh, other options will allow you to sell at a specific price. So if an option allows you to sell higher than the market, that's that, that can be a very profitable put option. So in August, Hedge fund Melvin Capital disclosed in an SEC filing that as of the end of June 2020, it held a short position against GameStop for 3.4 million shares, and they were options. This means that they had borrowed these options for 3.0 million shares of GameStop stock, and it also means that they had already sold those options, collected the money, and were waiting for the price to drop so that they could buy the same options at a lower price. And then they would pay back the options to the parties who lent them to Melvin in the first place and pocket the difference between the price that they sold the options for and the price they bought the options for. It's Remember, it's the reverse of buy low, sell high. It's sell high, then buy low later. 
In their next public filing, Melvin disclosed that their short position on GameStop options had grown to 5.4 million shares, even as the price of GameStop stock had risen to more than risen, risen $10 per share, an increase of 135%. So despite the fact that the stock price is moving in exactly the wrong direction for Melvin Capital, they're getting more options. And That makes sense because as the price goes up, if you are convinced that the price is going to go down by a lot, you can cover your losses and make even more money by getting those shares at a higher price because then you're going to buy them later at the much lower price. You'll increase your profit on the later purchased shares. But also what this means is that Melvin was in a pretty bad place as early as the end of September of 2020. Now, when when Melvin made those disclosures, they were public and they were free for anyone to see. And one person who saw those disclosures was a Reddit user called Stonks Flying Up, and I can't believe I actually just said Stonks Flying Up out loud on air. (laughs) And really one of the best parts of this story are the handles of the Redditors. But in late October, Stonks Flying Up videoed to the Wall Street Bets subreddit calling for a buy-up and hold of GameStop stock to get the hedge funds. A short time later, when the Redditors saw Melvin increasing its short position, they got more and more chatty. The Financial Times described it as traders on Reddit declaring war on the hedge fund, committing to drive the price on the shares to the moon. As 2020 closed out, GameStop stock, fed by retail investors such as the Redditors on Wall Street Bets, climbed to near $20 a share. This is a stock that had traded a year earlier at $4 to $6 a share. Then January came. In mid-January, GameStop announced that the founder of pet food retailing giant Chewy.com had joined their board, promising to bring their digital marketing genius to GameStop and begin GameStop's digital era. Under normal circumstances, this would produce a bump in stock price. In the heightened environment of GameStop, it resulted in the stock going, if not to the moon, at least into the upper reaches of the atmosphere. The result? Retail investors made a lot of money for over a very short period of time. The stock was incredibly volatile. The hedge funds that had short positions were forced to sell their positions in order to to, to deal with the margin calls. To that, they had to dump other stocks and other equities in order to come up with the cash to pay their commitments, and that further affected the market. So what's the big failing here? Funds typically monitor trading in their positions. There's no reason to think that Melvin Capital didn't monitor trading in GameStop. They had been at it for some time, but Melvin stayed in the stock as the stock went from $4 to $6 to $10 to $18 to $360. By the time they had to abandon their positions, there was nowhere for them to go. They had to liquidate other assets to come up with the cash to fund margin calls on their options positions. The result? Melvin Capital lost 53% of its value. Ultimately, they were saved by a purchase of a portion of the fund by larger funds, Citadel and Point72, who invested two and three quarter billion dollars in Melvin Capital to save it. Hmm. One other hedge fund reported that they closed out their short position at a cost of 100% of the position. So not only was it a total loss of the investment, but it was a further loss of an amount equal to their investment to meet their obligations under their short contracts. What happened that Melvin Capital didn't get out of this stock earlier, we'll probably never know. They may have to explain that to their investors, but they will probably never have to explain that to the public. So, if not getting ahead of the curve 
if not being aware of what the market was doing on Melvin's part with some was sort of with some sort of systemic failure, then we'll probably hear about that when Congress gets involved. And Megan, we're going to talk about Congress getting involved in a second. What are the potential big successes here? Well, when a company's stock rises in price, when there's a huge run up in price, does that do anything for the company? And so, I'll, I'll, Danny, I'll put this to you. When a company, when a distressed company in particular, which GameStop being a, a retailer in the pandemic most certainly was, when a distressed company's stock becomes irrationally exuberant, what happens for the company? That's a great question. And I think it's important that you mentioned, by the way, that you emphasize this is a retail company. And you know, even before the pandemic, books, bricks and mortar retail across the country had been suffering and dropping like flies. Then you add the pandemic and people walking into stores, no more traffic through shopping centers. They're falling left and right. So what happens if all of a sudden their stock value explodes? If people have asked me that question a lot, I, you know, okay, so if, if, the, if the stock explodes, doesn't that increase the value of the company? Doesn't that mean that the company's going to be saved? But the, I don't think the answer is yes to that at all. Um, the, the value of a stock is not necessarily connected to the enterprise value of a business in any way. Um, the company still has its debts. It's still got to meet, it's still got to pay its landlords, its vendors, it's, it's lenders and it's got, it has to service its debt and, and it's not going to have increased revenue just because the stocks went up. And, uh, unless of course they're over-invested in their own stock. And, of in course, which case. But, then, but then they've got to get out in time, right? I right. mean, you have to have, the, the company has to say, well, okay, we're riding a balloon here. Everyone has to know it's going to burst, right? It's not going to keep going forever. Um, so if you don't sell in time, you're going to take a bath. And look what happened last week to GameStop shares. Uh, I mean, it's where it plummeted. Right, uh, which which would otherwise be called a correction, I think. So AMC, Hertz, two big names, two big distressed companies. Hertz was in bankruptcy at the time. When, when the stock market looked favorably for reasons that we'll never be able to sufficiently explain, but when the market looked favorably on their stock – they both looked at that as an opportunity to, to finance themselves. Hertz is a great example. Hertz went to the bank. The Hertz was in bankruptcy. And as you said, for reasons we just can't imagine, the value of the shares started going up. The, this company files bankruptcy. It's in big trouble. And more people want to buy the shares. And the company said, well, this is a chance for us to increase our revenue why don't we reissue shares, we issue new shares, take advantage of the inflated prices, and voila, we've got a lot more capital. But the bankruptcy court said no. And now, if you don't know, to do anything out of the ordinary, usual business is always context in bankruptcy, you've got to get permission by the court after giving notice to the universe. To the, and that means the, you're giving notice to the Justice Department and the SEC and all the other creditors everybody. And the bankruptcy court said, no, I'm not going to authorize a new stock issue on an inflated value because that's just, we're looking at more people getting hurt. Remember in bankruptcy, it's the shareholders who get paid last and often right. not at all. We, we, we often refer to shareholders in a bankruptcy as the lowest form of creditor, 
which is basically what they are. Um, and, and the big difference, I think, between AMC, which just, I think, cashed in, what, $750 million of, of stock, and Hertz was that Hertz wanted to issue new shares. AMC, I think, is simply trading on existing shares, are they not? That's my understanding. Although I, I think that AMC actually did issue, and, and I don't know, I haven't covered AMC, so I'm, I, I, I could be really wrong. But what I think is that they did do a, 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 a new issue and actually was able to stave off collapse for a while. Right. Well, and, and the big difference between the two is that AMC isn't in bankruptcy dot, dot, dot yet. Right. And they don't need to get permission from the bankruptcy court, although I'm sure there are other kinds of, um, of, of regulatory hoops that they have to jump through to do it. Right. And, and that's not my field, and I couldn't opine on that. So, so as counterintuitively as it seems that a run-up in stock price from $4 to $364 in the course of 12 months for absolutely no good reason at all doesn't actually benefit the company, um, there, there is the looming question of what does this all do for the for or to the investors? So Robinhood, a popular trading platform that we're going to be talking about a lot more after the break, but Robinhood halted trading in GameStop stock except to close out positions. So if, if you needed to fulfill a commitment that you had that you had placed through the platform, you could you could sell or buy for those reasons, but they stopped free trading of GameStop stock. And this caught a number of retail traders on the Robinhood platform as a as a pretty big surprise, particularly because it was right right after kind of the cusp of of this race up in value in a very short amount of time. Um, Danny, there is some litigation that has now been filed about this issue. There are, people are unhappy. The the Robinhood users are unhappy. Uh, they were making a lot of money as the as the stocks for GameStop are jumping up, they're watching their values, you know, take off. And all of a sudden, Robinhood pulled the plug and said, You're, you can't make any trades anymore. And, and the, a lot of these uh, retail purchasers, I like, I like to refer to them as kind of as the, the retail mob, um, were very unhappy at being denied an opportunity to make more money. Although, arguably, Robinhood's thinking, we're giving you an opportunity not to lose more money. Um, but they went and, and there's currently an action in California where they're asking for the court to establish an MDL, which, which is a multi-district litigation. It's federal litigation that, that, that brings in cases from across the country. You see it all the time in, in major tort cases and, and, you know, like you said, the, the, the sex abuse lawsuits against the Boy Scouts or, Think a class action of class actions. The class action of class actions. Thanks, Ted. That's a good way of putting it. So they're trying to get something going there. I don't know what the status is, but as of yesterday, I, don't, I think it was just a request. So, Megan, we've got, we've got all the interesting hot points. We've got a lot of press coverage in a short amount of time that most people don't understand. Yep. We've got multi-district litigation. We've got a retail platform locking up people's money and, and trapping them in trades. This just screams for for congressional attention. What do you think is going to happen on this side of it? You know, when you saw Robin Hood halt trading, uh, everyone from AOC to Ted Cruz are tweeting and releasing statements 
uh, it cut across parties talking about, we need to look into this. This is, uh, you know, inconscionable. We need to know if they're manipulating markets or if, you know, they have improper relationships with, you know, some of their funders. Um, So it gained a lot of attention really fast, but what there hasn't been has, there hasn't been any policy solutions of, oh, maybe we should do this. Um, and I think that a lot of folks in the financial services industry don't think that Congress is actually going to end up doing anything about this and that it's all a big bluster uh, to, to, to seize on this populist moment. Right. And well, and it turns out that when Robin Hood halted trading, one of the re- they they said that one of the reasons they had halted trading was because they needed to make sure they needed to to adhere to certain capital requirements that okay. people were getting too far out in front on positions, and they're required to turn the switch off when that happens. Yeah, and you know they were borrowing money. They were trying to increase their capital, and I mean their argument to Congress is pretty simple, which is we wanted to follow the rules. We care about the rules, you know, set in place by Dodd-Frank, you know, all of these, you know, financial regulations and the crisis. And and that's the reason, you know, why we did what we did. And I think some of the other players that you're mentioning uh, certainly, you know, don't have that, you know, sort of dry, boring answers. You know, one of my sources was saying that, you know, the sexier part is the hedge fund uh, aspect of it, right. like you were mentioning, and even the high-speed trading uh, firms that, that, you know, sort of, uh, get in and out of, uh, of stocks really fast. So there was a a few years ago, there was a a pretty well is probably several years ago. There was a big market correction. And I I just remember, um, a meme floating around Facebook and Twitter, and it was a room full of banks of servers in server cabinets. (laughs) You know, you've got the cables, you've got the blinking lights and the, the, the caption is, um, you know, Wall Street traders get emotional during the crash. And, you know, because it's all driven by, it's all driven by computers and trading algorithms. There, you know, the days of, of people being on the trading floor screaming buy, buy and sell, sell are, are very far behind us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's, it's difficult to envision a scenario in which somebody at Robinhood says, no, we're going to stop trading. It was probably a, a, a bit that flipped and somebody just didn't overrule it. Yeah, it's certainly, uh, yeah, Congress is going to, there's a, you know, the hearing that uh, in the House Financial Services Committee that's happening on the 18th, uh, you know, Chair Maxine Waters really wants to uh, call in everyone involved. She says, you know, I want Citadel, I want Reddit, I want, you know, Robin Hood, I want to get to the bottom of this and bring everyone in and let's hash, hash this thing out. So uh, if nothing else, it might be some good uh, television. Yeah, um, we'll we'll talk about this a little bit more in the next half, but I badly want to see a congressional hearing with deep effing value, (laughs) giving giving their experiences on the record under oath to, to, to House Financial Services. But first, we are going to stop for a quick break. We're talking with Bloomberg reporters Daniel Gill and Megan Wilson about GameStop, the short squeeze, and what it all means. If you enjoy what we're trying to do here, be sure to share the show on social media. We're Biz Disrupted, B-I-Z Disrupted, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and we appreciate your mentions. For now, we're going to take a short break and let our sponsors have a crack at you. When we come back, we'll look at how Congress gets involved in all of this, or does it? 
your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Gavin Solmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring, and litigation consulting. Whatever your situation, we have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth. We've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success. No matter the size or complexity of the case, our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product. We know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, it's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at GavinSolmanese.com or call us at 302-655-8997. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You are listening to Business Disrupted. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We are talking with Bloomberg journalists Megan Wilson and Daniel Gill about last month's GameStop stock surge and the different groups who each had a hand in that event. So we talked earlier about how this story falls into three buckets. In the first bucket, we talked about the the retail investors and the hedge funds. We're going to talk about the second one now, which is the relationships between market makers and the retail brokers. So we mentioned Robinhood earlier. Robinhood is a retail broker. A, A person like you or me will go and sign up with Robinhood and open an account. It's the same as Schwab or E-Trade or TD Ameritrade. They're a stock brokerage firm. Uh, the, the thing about Robinhood is that they are commission-free, and that's, that's how they interface with their customers. That's their big selling point. You can buy and sell stocks for no commission. There is an analogy that is used a lot when talking about social media platforms like Facebook. If you're not paying for the service, you're not the customer, you're the product. So if Robinhood is letting, letting consumers buy and sell stock, on its platform and is not charging them, then surely they must be making money somehow. And the way they make money is they route their trades through several different market makers, one of which is Citadel Securities. And Citadel Securities pays Robinhood for every trade it handles. 
It pays Robinhood 26 one-hundredths of a cent for every stock trade and 50 cents for every option trade. That concept is called payment for order flow, and it was invented, coincidentally enough, by fraudster Bernie Madoff in the 1980s. Uh, although there's nothing particularly fraud-inducing or unusual about payment for order flow. A lot of places do it. Schwab does it, E-Trade does it, Ameritrade does it. It's pretty common. It was, however, examined by the Securities Exchange Commission during the Obama administration as being a potential conflict of interest. And there's a reason why. Payment for order flow runs the risk of putting the interests of the market maker and the broker ahead of the interest of the retail trader or the broker's customers. And it risks the broker violating their duties to, to find what's called best execution. And best execution is a very technical test. And there's about eight different indicia of whether something falls, satisfies the best execution requirements. But basically, it's a requirement that the broker fulfill its customer orders with the fastest execution or the best price, and then a bunch of other things. One of the things that Citadel or any market maker could do is use, the, use what they know about pending trade information from Robinhood to inform Citadel's own trading decisions. So first, Citadel is a giant industry. They handle one quarter of all exchange-listed options trades. So that's a lot of trading information that they're collecting. And all this information is about their customers' customers' trades. So they can see trends and movements in the market before they actually touch the market itself. They can be sitting on 10,000 orders to buy a specific stock before they actually buy that stock for the ultimate customers. So for example, let's say a broker sends over 100 separate orders to buy GameStop stock totaling 5,000 shares, and those orders are to buy the shares at no more than $100 per share. The market maker takes note of these pending orders, but instead of processing them, by purchasing the stock on the customer's behalf, they see that they can purchase the stock right now for $99.98 each. So they buy those 5,000 shares, and then they sell their 5,000 shares to Robinhood's customers for $100 each. The market maker pockets the difference of $0.02 cents per share. $0.02 cents doesn't seem like much, but $0.02 cents times 5,000 shares equals $0.10,000 cents or $100. Now, that's how a market maker makes 100 bucks in a fraction of a second. The retail customer never knows that it was sold stock for a higher price than they could have gotten it. The retail customer never knows that the broker that the broker it uses sold their transaction to the market maker and received a fee for doing so. In so fact, profits? In fact, Chad, aren't they under the impression that they're not paying a fee at all and that they're getting it at the market price? They absolutely are. And 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 the customer disclosure issue becomes a, a, a bit of a snake bite. So who profits? The market maker does great. They, they made a cool hundred bucks for doing nothing. The broker got paid for each of the hundred orders it sent over to the market maker. The customer paid a fraction higher for the stock than they had to, and they'll probably never know. Alternately, the market maker could see that there's a lot of activity in GameStop stock based on the pending orders it's receiving from the brokers who are its customers. And while holding the Robinhood customer's orders, they just buy some GameStop stock for themselves, which drives the price of the GameStop stock up even more, and then processes the Robinhood orders, which drives the price up even more again. So payment for order flow creates the scenario wherein a broker is rewarded by sending trades to the highest paying intermediary, as opposed to the one that will process those trades the fastest, 
or at the lowest price, or by any one of the six or so other criteria that the SEC uses to determine if a broker is meeting its best execution test. And this caused some problems for Robinhood in the past because they paid a $1.25 million fine in 2019 because of best execution violations. The SEC found that Robinhood failed to provide best execution to its clients, costing its clients more than $34 million due to inferior trade prices, and that's after factoring in the lack of commissions. So, is the GameStop story really a story of retail investors sticking it to hedge funds? Maybe. But there were plenty of hedge funds buying GameStop as well, and they had a lot more money in the system to buy a lot more shares than retail. It's also the story, though, of market makers and brokers making bank on the backs of those retail investors, whether those retail investors made good trades or not. And that's really the story of the Wall Street retail model, is that the system will profit whether the individual investor is making good decisions or bad decisions, whether they're making money or losing money, whether they're finding a windfall or getting terribly, terribly overextended. And so this gets back to the conversation about where Congress may get involved. Megan, what are your thoughts on how this issue plays into the bigger systemic question about kind of the regulatory framework and and what Congress is going to be yelled at to do something about in all capital letters with lots of exclamation points. <laughs> well, I mean, these hedge funds, they sort of escaped the Dodd-Frank uh, mechanisms that were put in place for big banks. And so I think, you know, you may see some arguments that maybe they should come under more scrutiny. Uh, market makers like Citadel Securities, the payment for order flow that you're uh, examining, it's banned in the UK uh, former Senator Carl Levin wrote an op-ed before, you know, all this back in, you know, uh, I think it was um, the 11th uh, of last month, um, talking about the need for the SEC to, to do something about payment for order flow and ban it like it is banned in the UK. So I do think there's going to be a lot of yelling uh, to sort of make sure that the markets are not, you know, uh, being treated like a casino where, uh, market makers, hedge funds, all of these high finance organizations are able to profit on the backs of ordinary retail investors. So one of the things that seems to be at the heart of this particular problem, the payment for order flow and the, the lack of, of, of disclosure is the lack of disclosure. And, and Daniel, I'll, I'll turn to you because you and I come from bankruptcy which by is is a tra- the process is designed to create transparency. Disclosure is is one of the hallmarks of of the place where where we both live. Maybe the hallmark, right? Um, I mean, you can't get hired in a bankruptcy case without twelve pages of disclosures, even when it's you know it's one long paragraph saying these are all the people in the case and I have relationships and I'll probably have relationships with them again and other people will show up and I might have relations with them too. Uh, but disclosure is, is really the way that a transparent system is supposed to operate. Here, on the other hand, you've got a retail customer who signs up with a platform like Robinhood, which purports to not charge them anything. But what they're not saying is, by the way, every time you trade, we get paid. So we have no incentive to stop you from trading, no matter how bad your trading patterns are, because we're getting paid. We have an economic incentive to let you make 
whatever decisions you want to make and facilitate those sales. But do they want that? I mean, do these, do these retail, does does the retail mob want someone to be babysitting their purchases or not? And I, and, and I think we're seeing that they don't, I mean, this is, they want the free market. They want to buy and sell as much as they want to do. Uh, Well, I think that's right. MDL litigation. And I think if, if retail investors wanted someone to say, eh, I don't know if that's such a good idea, then they would be going with another platform that had individual stockbrokers who they could call on the phone. Right. Um, and so the market has spoken in that regard. What is perhaps the bigger issue is, at least in terms of disclosure, is that it, it's not clear that the retail investor understands that the platform is profiting off of them in ways that, that, that they haven't disclosed or haven't communicated, or if they have communicated it, it's on page 37 of 112 page terms of service written in, you know, fly spec three font and, and, and comes somewhere after the arbitration requirement that requires them to go to Indonesia to settle all disputes. (laughs) Um, The other issue is, that there that there is another intermediary out there who can put their own interests ahead of not only the the individual investor but also everybody on the Robinhood platform by by gathering information about what they're doing buying in a way that maximizes the intermediary's profit and then you get dinged for a couple of cents on the back end you probably don't care about the couple of cents but if you're looking at it as all Robinhood platform investors aggregating their, their total loss, as we saw with uh, the Robinhood SEC findings, $34 million starts to amount to money that somebody might care about. I mean, who's Robinhood robbing from and who's Robinhood giving to? You know? Well, nice, nicely phrased. That's, uh, th- that's a good question. So, Megan, what do you think... What do you think the legislative advocacy angle is around this this dynamic? Is it, well, this is how the system works and we should leave it alone? Or is it going to be a, no, we'll, we'll do better with transparency. We'll try and clean, our, so clean this up. What's, what do you think the tensions are, both on the pro, pro-regulatory side and the industry side that really would rather not see anything new? Well, I think it's a, it could be a little bit of both, right? Talking about the role that short sellers play in the market, how it helps to sort of, you know, provide this equilibrium and, you know, the fact that, you know, these things correct, self-correct means that the market is working. All of these things have their role, have their place. Um, and at the same time, if the industry wants to propose some, um transparency requirements like that is a an easy way to sort of placate uh an angry lawmaker by saying hey look you know we want to be transparent we don't mind so you 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 give them something easier an easier regulation something palatable to them so that you don't face something tougher uh later on so that you know you look uh you know collegial and uh, like you care about transparency, you care about the retail investor. So you satiate that need from them um, while at the same time, you know, helping to improve your image. So I think it, 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 it could be a little bit of both. Right. And, and so that, that practice um, is 
giving some, it's giving the legislators something shiny to focus on. Exactly. While, while drawing their focus away from this other thing over here that you'd rather them not look at. You know, uh, it, it could open, this could open the door to, you know, if, if, someone, you know, a lawmaker wanted to go after capital gains or carried interests or all of these, you know, things that have been a target for Democrats for a long time, you know, there is a feeling that if you don't nip this in the bud, if you don't uh, fix this now, this is all a path to go do some other things, you know, to the industry. Um, So providing a, a transparency proposal uh, might go a long way in terms of giving them, you know, to borrow a phrase, something shiny to look at so that right. they don't, you know, do something later. So does this get wrapped up into the same privacy conversations that, that, that seem to dominate the conversation about Facebook and other social media platforms as well? Getting back to the, if you're, if it's a free service, then, then you're the product and not the consumer. I mean, that's a entirely apt, uh, comparison. Yeah. Um, Absolutely, because, <laughs> you know, as you, you know, went through this payment for order flow um, really makes, you know, the Robinhood user, the E-Trade user, the, you know, the product rather than the customer. So, um, yes, it does. And I think they would argue that that's totally fine as long as people understand that, you know, that's the situation and um, are okay with it. So the, the flip side of that is that in a, in a closed financial system, everything is a zero sum game. So, you know, the, the, the fact that the retail investor is getting, is, is, is losing out on some minuscule amount of margin is because the intermediary needs to get paid. And so they leave those dollars behind and, and the money flows upward. And then the intermediary then has to, to give up some element of margin to the party on the other side. And so, you know, money never goes away. It just belongs to somebody else now. And even with Melvin Capital that lost 53% of its value, that money didn't go away. It just belongs to somebody else now. There's the same number of dollars in the system at the end of the day as there were at the beginning of the day. They just belong to other people. So I, I imagine the argument is transparency or not, you don't change the financial ramifications there perhaps some people are better informed, but the system is working the way the system is supposed to work. And, and I would think that that would be one of the arguments against changing the status quo. That's right. You know, I think that, you know, if you talk to, you know, most folks who specialize in financial services lobbying, who work in this industry, the system is working, as you said, as exactly as it's designed to work. Uh, things go up, things come down, short squeezes happen. Like you mentioned earlier, this is not a new phenomenon. Um, it is the, the, the Reddit uh, aspect of it uh, is sort of novel, but, um, you know, I think a lot of folks would just argue that, you know, things are working the way it's supposed to work. You know, Melvin, there's a reason Melvin was bailed out and it's because for almost $3 billion, uh, which is not a small sum of money, but, there's confidence that that money will just come back. But this, this, the system uh, is so, uh, you know, replete with financial opportunities that Melvin has already moved on from this while Congress is still mulling over what happened a week or two ago. 
they they took that two and three quarter billion dollars. They immediately put it to use because a hedge fund doesn't make any money when money's not invested. Right. And you know, they. I wonder if they took their carry. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, well, we'll have to find that out in yeah. disclosures later because that that'd be a that'd be a handsome sum of money, but probably not. Um, oddly, much of it would go back to the two investors who invested the two and three quarter billion dollars, but they put that money to work and they had realized gains from other things in their portfolio. Their, their yep. sole game wasn't shorting GameStop. They yep. were doing other things. They, they had other investments that did well. So yep. even, even with a 53% loss, it's only on that one stock yep. that then gets set off against their gains elsewhere, which makes the loss a lot less. Absolutely. I think it was, you know, in the tens, so, uh, the overall loss. So so it's fair to say then that Melvin's investors probably went from having an absurdly good quarter to having a, eh, we'll make it up by the end of the year. A hundred percent. You know, right. it's, it's February. <laughs> yeah. It's, still, it's lots, really- still lots of uh, opportunities. I wonder what the retail mob feels about it. I, I was struck by reading a uh, Reddit post by one of the, these retail mobsters who was talking about this whole scheme of driving up the, the, the price for the sake of burning the hedge fund. And the guy yeah. talked, he talked about how his parents lost everything in the crash of 2007, 2008 and the subprime mortgages and how hedge funds saw it coming and were able to accumulate tremendous wealth while people were losing their homes. And this guy, I mean, he made it clear. It's like, let's drive them into the dirt. Um, that's why everyone should buy, 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 buy. And, uh, you know, I wonder what they're th- saying now when, you know, they see Melvin brushing some dust off and getting back off the, off the, the mat and going back to it. So the, the desire for systemic revenge is an interesting one. And it comes a lot, it comes up a lot in a lot of areas. Um, I don't know how effective it is because there's an argument to be made that the system is always going to win. The machine will always win. The house wins, right? The the house always wins. Um, yeah, that's why you're a reporter. Uh, you, you can you can think of the thing that I'm trying to say and I'm just utterly not succeeding at. Um, oh no no don't don't sell the, yourself short. The, yes, that was on no, purpose. Oh, wow, that <laughs> that just happened. Um, yeah, I mean the the house always wins. So there are still retail investors. There are still hedge funds. The retail investors had a good day on a couple of stocks, and and then the ones who were left holding the bag, thinking that everybody else was going to continue climbing over the wall ended up riding it from 300 and something dollars per share back down to a much, much lower number. Now it's still higher than it should be. Perhaps it's still higher than it was, but it's not as high as, as it was when a lot of people bought in. So again, the ebullience that the, the people who were in early and made a lot of money and kept it feel is set off a bit by the fact that, you know, it's a zero sum system and the money didn't go away. It just moved to other people. So we mentioned before, and this is the relationships between the hedge funds and the hedge funds. And sometimes they're the same hedge fund, 
We mentioned before that a large fund, Citadel, saved Melvin Capital by investing $2 billion out of $2.75 billion to purchase an interest in Melvin. And that's nice. You remember the exchange intermediary we talked about that handled Robinhood's trades, Citadel Security? They're basically the same people. One is the trading arm of the other. So again, you have the intermediary that is doing well by processing trades, and then they buy in at the lowest point in a hedge fund's life. And as we've been talking about, they're going to ride that right back up. They're not going to own it forever. They'll get redeemed out at some point, but they're going to make a lot of money on the $2 billion probably over the next 24 months, and that'll be one of their best investments. So the Managed Funds Association, which I kid you not is the Hedge Fund Industry Association, spent $3.2 billion in 2020 on advocacy, which Megan, correct me if I'm wrong, but that sounds like a fancy way of saying lobbyists. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's what they disclosed uh, to the Senate. Uh, that's what they spent uh, on lobbying um, and all of their lobbying firms and such. So in, in a minute and a half, what do you think is the end game here on the Hill for the hedge funds? Look, they just have to stop the bleeding. Um, this is more, you know, my financial services lobbyists are saying this is more of a PR exercise than a policy one. Um, they're going to escape relatively unscathed from a policy perspective is the prediction. Um, and that they just have to remind policymakers what their role is in the markets, uh, how they, uh, how they operate and how they, um, you know, provide that equilibrium that I was talking about in terms of, you know, a down for every up, uh, in, in the short for every long, uh, in the market to make sure that things work. So um, right now they are likely meeting with offices, calling offices to re-educate them is, is the word that a lot of lobbyists would use about, you know, their benefits to the system. They're making, making their cases. They're throwing a lot of happy hours for interns. <laughs> not right now. Not in the no, pandemic. Well, no, no. I, I Zoom <laughs> happy hours for interns. You can, you can ship alcohol in the district, can't you? That's true. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Well, oops, sorry, wrong music. Megan Wilson and Danny Gill, thank you for joining us today. It was a genuine pleasure having you, and I hope you'll both come back again. You can find Daniel Gill on Twitter at Daniel H. Gill, and Megan Wilson is on Twitter at Miss Wilson. If you like what we're trying to do here, again, make sure you let your friends and social media contacts know about us. Share and mention us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're biz disrupted everywhere. Join us next time as we explore all the things that go into bringing 100,000 people to a swing state city for four nights of parties, long lines, silly hats, and one big balloon drop. The business of planning, executing, and cleaning up from a presidential year national political convention, and how all of that changed in a pandemic year. We'll be joined by Joe Salmanis, Chief Executive Officer of the 2020 Democratic National Convention, on our next episode, Any Functioning Adult 2020. Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Cholino. Our audio engineer is Aaron Keller. Our theme song and original music are by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group. PR and social media by Carol Lunger, Emily Stern, and C Creative. You can find episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America Business and the World Talk Radio Network. Thank 
you for tuning in to Business Disrupted. Be sure to join Ted Gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.